rejoining our studies this week in 1 Corinthians after a brief hiatus last week for Reformation Sunday. And we are, in a sense, wrapping up Paul's thoughts, his critique of the way the Corinthian church was engaged in an overemphasis of tongues in the midst of their worship. You find as we pick up in verse 13, it begins with this, therefore, he is very much continuing this same line of thought. So we're seeing again the way that uh, in the church we ought to strive to build one another up and to use these gifts of the Spirit that the, the Lord has given to his church so that we would be built up together and encouraged and edified. We're going to continue today uh, in 1 Corinthians 14, looking at verses 13 through 25. You can find that on page 960 of our ESVs if you've not found it yet. 1 Corinthians 14, verses 13 through 25. Before we come to read God's Word, please join me in a word of prayer. O Lord, again we come to you, empty and needy, and in need of you to fill us with your Spirit, in need of us to speak with your Word. We thank you that we can have good confidence in these words that you have given the words that you have spoken. We can hear and understand and know that you are God. We pray that you would meet us with your word and build us up, we pray, by your spirit. Amen. Hear now God's word as we find it in 1 Corinthians 14, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues... And by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. One of the values that I was raised with, is the idea that if you can get away with it, you never pay full price for anything. And so that meant several things. It meant that when we needed new jeans, we went to the thrift store. It meant that if we ever wanted to go out to eat a meal together, we had to make sure we had a coupon. 
And it meant that if we needed new sunglasses, we went to the flea market. Now that last one there, flea market sunglasses. Uh, that was, in a sense, about saving money, but not entirely about saving money. It was also about the, uh, the desire to have the appearance of impressiveness uh, at a modest investment. You see, as most vain teenage males, my brother and I desperately wanted the social status that came along with having a real pair of Oakleys. But we could not stomach, nor could we afford the idea that we should have to go to the mall and lay down $100 to buy said pair of Oakleys. But don't worry, because you could go to the local flea market and for around $6 you could get something that looked close enough to pass. They were the right size and shape, the logos were in the right place, and maybe if, if someone didn't get too close to us, they would think, wow, they have Oakleys, they must be really uh, important or cool or rich or whatever we associated with this idea and this idol. Of course, we weren't foolish enough to think that at the flea market we were buying real Oakleys, but that didn't matter. It simply mattered that it looked good to the outside. Maybe you've done the same thing. It's that $20 handbag you bought on a uh, street corner in New York City the last time you visited. It's that watch that cost you $50 but is supposed to look strikingly similar to something 20 times as much. I'm sure you've never been that foolish uh, to buy something like that, but the temptation is there. The temptation to make a minimum investment for the sake of appearing more impressive or significant. The temptation to buy into something counterfeit for the chance to pass it off as the real thing. That is, in a sense, the warning that is here in these verses that we've read from Paul. This is a warning. God is telling his people not to settle for exercising spiritual gifts in a way that merely appears impressive on the outside, but doesn't actually match up to real worship. There's a danger in our worship. There's even a danger in the way that we use and think about spiritual gifts in buying into a counterfeit and thinking that that counterfeit uh, will give us all that we need. There's a danger of giving up what has real power in order to cling to what we think is merely outwardly impressive. I've mentioned already Paul is following this same line of thought, but it's been a while since we started back in chapter 12. So perhaps a review will help us as we turn our attention to what Paul has to say here. We found back in chapter 12 uh, that the Holy Spirit works in a variety of ways through a variety of people. And that all of those various manifestations are meant to draw our eyes to the Lord God, to show us His glory so that we would be those who praise Him. We saw in chapter 13 that love should be the director for the way that we use these gifts and the manifestations of the Spirit in our midst. We saw in the beginning of this chapter the way that in love and for the glory of God, we ought to build one another up. And specifically, Paul pointed out the need for clear instruction, clear teaching and prophecy. And now he turns his attention, in a sense, to the same, but a slightly different aspect of the same argument. Well, how does this affect our gathered worship? When we show up together, when we're all sitting together in one room and we're doing whatever it is that we do together in worship, how can we make sure that we're engaged in the real thing and not merely a counterfeit? How can we think well about the Spirit's gifts? How can we use the Spirit's gift in such a way that we would be drawn into and we would cultivate genuine worship rather than counterfeit it? Now, anytime you're working uh, with counterfeits, it's helpful to know a few subtle details. 
those distinguishing marks that can tell the difference between the genuine article and the fake. And there are a few uh, elements here, a few subtle details Paul gives us. I think as the ESV has it broken down here, we're going to see two of these elements of real worship. We're going to see in verses 13 through 19 that real, genuine, spirit-empowered worship is a matter of wholeness, not something that's meant to be fractured and divided into tiny little pieces. We're also going to see in verses 20 to 25 uh, that real, genuine, spirit-fueled worship always moves us toward maturity and doesn't leave us in a state of childishness. So wholeness and maturity, two of the hallmarks of real spirit-filled worship. Let's consider that first one together. The idea that when the spirit works in his people, when they're gathered together, when real worship happens, that there's an element of wholeness in it. It's clear Paul is continuing to deal with this gift that was so prominent in the Corinthian church, their overemphasis on tongues. And in verse 13, he calls them back to a better balance. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. He's saying you ought to strive to use the whole gift for the benefit of the whole church. Don't be content to have something that is just for you in your own little corner. Worship is meant to be uh, the whole body together. And he's saying pray that the Holy Spirit would turn your tongue's speech into teaching speech so that everyone will be built up. Worship is a matter of wholeness. But when we turn worship into something that is partial, when we make it fragmented and, and, and fractured, we turn it into a, a counterfeit. And, and there are two examples in this first paragraph of how that happens. First, you can turn worship into a counterfeit if you're content to involve merely part of the worshiper. Verse 14, he says, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, I imagine that many of you have probably heard someone cite this verse as a kind of apostolic endorsement, as the kind of tongue speaking uh, that takes hold in contemporary charismatic worship. What it is, really, is is a kind of spiritual catharsis. It's a blessing of the Lord. It's wonderful that you come in to worship on a Sunday, uh, and you've got all this pent-up spiritual angst or stress, but the Lord gives this sort of release. And it doesn't have to move in a particular direction, but it's this sort of emptying of all of that spiritual stress. And and you don't have to worry about sharpening someone else's faith. You don't even have to worry about what you're thinking or what you're saying in these tongues. It's good simply to let it all out. And you can pray with your spirit while your mind goes on a bit of a siesta. Now, it is clear from the context that that is not what Paul is saying we ought to be content with in worship. Take a look at verse 14 again. He's not saying that the ideal way to pray in the Spirit is to be connected. He's giving us a hypothetical. Suppose I were to pray in the Spirit only. Suppose I were to pray with no understanding, no recollection of what it is that's coming out of my mouth. Would that be a good thing? Would that be beneficial for anyone? But then in verse 15, he immediately corrects that. What then? What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I'll sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. You see, verse 14 is not the prescription for real worship. It's a problem that plagues real worship. 
that we can think in any manner uh, that, that worship uh, for ourselves and our own worshiping person can be divided into, well, I, my emotions are involved, but my mind's gone walkabout, or perhaps more for the, the Reformed among us, the other direction. Oh my, that pastor, so much truth in that passage. I'm not sure what to do with it, and it didn't really grab me or move me in any way, but there was a lot of truth there, and, and my brain just got so much bigger. That's not real worship either. Worship always involves the whole person. The Scriptures know nothing of true worship that is divided into minute portions of the worshiper. That is one of the problems in Old Testament worship, one of the things that the Lord rails against. It's manipulative. It's going through the motions without any real heart in it. No spirit of worship in the worshiper. That's what so often got the Israelites in trouble. The scriptures know nothing of real worship that is divided between head and spirit or soul and mind. That's what the woman at the well found out. You remember the story, John chapter 4. Here is this Samaritan woman with a sordid past, and along comes this teacher Seems he might be a prophet. Seems he's getting a little too close to understanding and looking into my past and knowing what I'm all about. And so I know what I'll do. I'll divert the conversation. I'll throw up a roadblock, and I'll try to engage him in a little bit of theological discussion. And so the woman at the well asked Jesus, you seem to be a prophet. Our fathers tell us that Mount Gerizim is where we ought to worship, but you Jews tell us that we ought to worship in Jerusalem. So which one is it? Where does real worship happen? And Jesus says, no. It's not about the here or the there. What does he say? The hour is coming. The hour is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking, seeking such people to worship him. That's real worship. It's doctrine that explodes into devotion. We can't have only one or the other and come away content thinking that we've had real worship if we're not worshiping in wholeness. That was the warning against prayer that Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that one as well. Jesus is teaching his disciples. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. Why not? Because they just like to be seen by other people. There they are on the street corners offering these prayers that look so impressive to everyone else that walks by. I'll bet they were doctrinally sound to the T. Such wonderful prayers that people would walk by and hear them and say, oh, that's a good prayer. I wish my prayer life was like that. I wish I could pray like that to the Lord. Then, oh, that would be the key to having a robust prayer life. And the Lord says there's no spirit of prayer in that sort of thing. They're not pouring out their hearts to the Lord. They're not engaged in what they're saying. Don't be like the hypocrites. They're divided. They're not praying and worshiping in wholeness. But then he turns the tables, doesn't he? Neither ought you to be like the Gentiles, because they heap up empty phrases. Some of your translations there in Matthew 6 might say uh, that they engage in vain repetition. The Greek behind that means really that they babble on meaninglessly. They merely string together a lot of syllables that don't have a whole lot of substance to them, and they go on and on and on, and they think that simply by having this spiritual experience that they're engaging in real prayer, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. That's not real worship. You see, you turn worship into a counterfeit when you involve only part of the worshiper. You also turn worship into a counterfeit when you engage only part of the church. 
Take a look at verse 16. If you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You see, gathered worship is supposed to engage the gathered body. And if ever idea of worship becomes a pursuit of sort of immediate personal spiritual euphoria, we have missed the point of what it means to come together and be gathered together in God's house and worship Him. There are consequences to worship like that. I don't know if any of you remember being in high school. Maybe you didn't have Oakleys. And you know what it was like to be on the outside and to feel like you were looking in and watching everyone else do their thing and you were just along the sidelines. Well, if we turn worship into that sort of thing, this cult of personality where each one gets their own individual little gift and it's just yours and you don't share it and it's not about uh, some sort of truth that you can proclaim and others can receive and you can rejoice together in, Paul says that you make the other people in worship mere spectators. Wallflowers at the dance hall looking on as the spotlight shines on one single worshiper and thinking, oh, I wish that I could be involved in what's going on over there. That's not real worship. It's a performance. Now, we don't struggle with this quite in the same way that the Corinthians struggled with it. I can't recall a single Sunday where I was worried that someone would stand up and launch into an unintelligible tirade that would direct uh, our worship or divert our worship from where it should be directed. But we do struggle with this. We struggle with the temptation especially to think that when we come to worship, uh, it is to be individually touched by the Spirit. I'm going, and, and I'm going to be there, and lots of other people will be there too, and maybe they'll get some benefit out of it, but I'm going to be blessed by the Spirit. And I judge my experience in worship by, by how well I was blessed and, and the feelings it arouses in me. There is an old Baptist hymn that has a soft spot in my heart, even though it is entirely misguided. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with, you know it, come on. He walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known. Is that what worship is about? So that we can sit through a service and at the end we can look at the person next to us and say, you know, I'd really love to tell you about the joy of knowing Christ, but I'm afraid you simply wouldn't understand. No one else has ever known this joy. Jesus speaks to me and only to me. That's not real worship, is it? Or do we come together week after week to see and to hear and to rejoice together? That the God who is the same yesterday and today and forever is working one righteousness for all his people. And we experience it in little ways and, and different experiences throughout our lives and depending on the struggles and the temptations that we're dealing with. But it is one joy and one righteousness and one salvation. The shadow of one cross falling over the lives of all believers gathered together underneath of it. Is that why we come together to worship? 
It doesn't mean that you can never worship by yourself reading your Bible on a Tuesday morning. No, no, no. And it doesn't mean that uh, when we have the confession of sin, you're not doing something personal, but we come together and we join our voices in one amen. We join our voices together to sing. We join together to eat and drink the symbols of Christ's love poured out for all of His elect together. That's what worship is. It engages the whole worshiper. It involves the whole church. Worship is a matter of wholeness. Secondly, though, worship in the power of the Spirit always presses us on to maturity. In verse 20, Paul tells the church in Corinth, it's time to grow up. Stop acting like a bunch of children regarding the gifts of the Spirit. You know, it is amazing the way children are able to take almost anything you give them and misuse them for a purpose they were not intended to be used for. Sometimes it's charming. You know, their imaginations are running so wild that anything you put into their greasy little hands has the potential to be used for something else. And that's, that's nice, but sometimes it's really frustrating. Well, they run off with your tools and you find them later trying to drive nails into a tree with your socket set or digging holes in the backyard with your best cake server. Names have been changed to protect the innocent. It, it didn't happen in our family. I, I try not to use those personal examples. But it happens, doesn't it? And it's frustrating, but children have a way of doing that, of taking things that are intended for one purpose and completely misusing it because they say, hey, this is how I think it ought to work. Well, in these verses, 20 to 25, we find it is a mark of spiritual maturity that we would use God's gifts for God's purposes. There are desires for the things he has given to his church would align with his design for those things. That was the problem with the overemphasis on tongues in Corinth. Paul made it clear. Well, they were so gaga over uninterpreted tongues that uninterpreted languages were never supposed to be some gateway for personal spiritual euphoria. Quite the opposite. Tongues were meant to be a sign of God's judgment against unbelief. Paul quoted Isaiah 28, which is why we read that seemingly obscure passage earlier today. He quotes Isaiah 28 in here, and then he makes this statement in verse 22. Tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. Now, that seems pretty straightforward so far. Seems like the same thing he's been telling us already, that in the church it's better to have prophecy because it builds up. It's a sign that serves as a benefit to believers. Okay, then, well, what about unbelievers? Well, maybe uh, tongues are a benefit for them. That's the way they function as a sign. You know, like on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell and and tongues became this this mode of uh, convincing and converting all of these other people to hear the message of Christ. And so maybe that's the place for tongues. Maybe it was meant to be an evangelism tool. There's a problem with that interpretation. And the problem is the rest of that paragraph. Specifically, what Paul says in verse 23. He says, no, foreign tongues, uh, unknown languages, actually serve to drive away those who don't believe. You fill your worship with uninterpreted babble, and all the unbelievers among you will be confirmed in thinking that you are indeed crazy. 
It's not a sign to draw them in, but rather it repels them in a sense. And, and again, prophecy takes center stage. If you want to see lives changed, if you want to see sin exposed and God glorified, meet people with clear teaching. Meet them with prophecy they can grasp and understand. Okay, so what's going on here then? What does Paul mean in verse 22 when he says that tongues are a sign for unbelievers? There are a few things we need to know about the way that signs, and specifically the sign of tongues, functions in the Bible. First thing we need to know is that signs in the Bible can be either positive or negative. Probably our immediate reaction is to think of signs in an essentially positive way, like the miracles that Jesus performed to point out who he was, or that greeting by the angel to the shepherds in Bethlehem. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Here's a wonderful and miraculous sign. But don't forget about the prophets. Don't forget about Ezekiel who made that tiny model of Jerusalem and laid on his side for 390 days acting out in a small way the judgment that was coming upon Jerusalem. Later in chapter 12, Ezekiel gathers all of his belongings and he puts them on his shoulder and he walks out of the city in the sight of the people, showing them, you are going to go to exile because you have spurned the word of the Lord. And in both of those instances, the Lord says the same thing. Ezekiel, I have made you a sign for the house of Israel. It wasn't a sign of of, uh, redemption, but it was a sign of judgment. It was a warning symbol for them. So signs can be negative in the Bible. Secondly, and here's where we need to do a little bit of digging, folks. Especially for Israel, foreign tongues signaled judgment for rejecting the clear teaching of the Lord. I'm going to ask you to turn back with me to that passage in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 28. We don't have time uh, or energy probably to really deep uh, dive into these verses. But there are a few things that we can see just on the surface, the way that Paul is using this to explain what tongues are all about. Take a look, especially beginning in verses 9 through 13. Now, if you've got a modern English translation, they're going to put verses 9 and 10 in quotation marks. This is an indication to you from the editors of your translation that likely what is happening in this oracle is this dialogue between the unrighteous leadership of Israel and God himself as he responds to them. The unrighteous leaders of Israel are speaking in verses 9 and 10. And what do they say? God treats us like we're children. Who is God going to teach wisdom to? Those who are just weaned? Toddlers? Is that the kind of wisdom that we need? He treats us like children. It's precept upon precept and line upon line. Isn't that the way you talk to children? Sit up straight, wash your hands, eat your dinner. Don't do that. Sit there, go there. It's just, it's all of these little things, and he's micromanaging, and we don't need to listen to the things the Lord is telling us. And so what does the Lord respond? Okay. If you won't listen to the clear teaching that I've sent you through my prophets, I will send you foreign tongues. Namely, I will send you the Assyrians. If you don't like being treated like children, they will treat you like slaves, and they will bark orders at you in a language that you do not know. And it will be a sign for you. It will be a sign of your judgment because you spurned the clear teaching that I gave you. Folks, that's the background that Paul is bringing into his discussion of tongues in 1 Corinthians. This is the mature view of what the Lord was doing with tongues. It was a sign of judgment. It seals hardened hearts 
and it confirms unbelief among those who scoff at the word of truth. And that was exactly what happened on the day of Pentecost. Yes, there were many visiting from other places who heard the message of God in their own language that day. And for them, that sign became basically prophecy. And they stood and they said, what a wonderful thing. We hear the wondrous works of God in our own language. God is speaking to us. What a blessing. And yet there were many others who did not hear. People from God's own chosen nation. The people who killed the prophets and rejected the Savior. The people who saw Jesus' miracles and hardened their hearts. The people who heard Jesus' parables but did not perceive the meaning behind them. The people who refused to believe when Christ told them, a day is coming when the kingdom is going to be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the Spirit fell and tongues came and people heard and people were converted and lives were changed and there they stood scoffing and not hearing a word of it. That's not a blessing. That is a curse. It is a picture of so many in the world who do not hear the word of the gospel though it rings in their ears and they turn up their noses and say, that's ridiculousness. I don't need to listen to this. I think I should turn to a God who wants to treat me like a child and talk to me about bad behavior and good rewards for those who seek Him. I don't need to listen to that. It's a curse and it's a judgment. And Paul's saying that is the sign of tongues. And you need to be wise and mature in the way that you think about it. As a final point uh, here on tongues, it's probably worth pausing to say that this argument from 1 Corinthians is one of the central reasons why Reformed churches like ours believe that the sign of tongues no longer happens, that it has ceased. It's a view called cessationism. It's a view that this sign of tongues was meant to be a particular sign for a particular period in history, the time of the apostolic growth of the church, the time of the transition from a kingdom that was predominantly Jewish to one that for the last 1,900 years or so has been predominantly Gentile. It was a sign of judgment on those who had heard God's word through the prophets and turned up their noses and said, we don't need to listen to this. And now that that age has passed, that sign no longer has the same relevance. O. Palmer Robertson explains it like this. He says, it's like the person who's in the car in front of you who turns and yet leaves their signal on. And it's there blinking, blinking, blinking. And they're not turning. They're keeping uh, straight on the road, and it's blinking, blinking. We don't need to seek out or expect that God will blink the same signal. There is a particular reason for tongues, and that reason has passed. But I think, nevertheless, you hear and you see what Paul's saying. Tongues were always meant to be a serious and a sober thing. And here in the church in Corinth, worship was suffering because tongues were being treated like a plaything. Believers were giddy and, and childish in their excitement. They made this gift something to be paraded and adored and preened. Something to show to others and say, aren't I special? I've got this thing and he speaks to me and no one else will ever know the joy of this experience. And that's not the mature view of tongues. That's never what it was meant to be. So what then is the remedy for the childish church? In a sense, the, the remedy for the childish church in Corinth, but also for the one in Concord, 
those of us who say, well, uh, maybe it is about me, and, and maybe I come to worship and I can engage just in, in a half step. Maybe I can engage with God's Word just uh, with part of me and not all of me, and I can sing the words, and it can be all formalism, and I'll be okay that way. What, what is the remedy for those who are in childishness in spirituality and need to grow up into maturity? Are we to seek out more spiritual experiences? Ways of distinguishing ourselves from one another by elevated gifting? Or does maturity come as the church is devoted to the clear teaching of the things of God? As we read in Ephesians, maturity comes as the church builds itself up together in love. That's the way. That was the effect of prophecy in the early church. You see that in the end of Paul's paragraph there. When the unbelievers met with prophecy, with prophecy, uh, they're convicted and they're called to account and secrets are disclosed, not to everyone else. This isn't, uh, here's what's going to happen to you in 20 years, but rather they're cut to the core of their being. They're laid bare before the clear word of God. Isn't this the same thing that happens when we read God's prophetic word today? Again, we believe that the prophetic word in the sense of new and special revelations has ceased. Yet we have God's word, his clear teaching, his prophetic word of the gospel, and we come to it again and again, week after week, as one people join together, and the same things happen when we read it. And sin is exposed, and our hearts are laid bare before the Lord. And we fall on our faces, perhaps metaphorically. We fall on our faces and we say, the Lord is present when I gather with these people. He's present by His Spirit. He's present in His Word. He's present in the communion that we share. And that's why we gather week after week to raise our voices together in song and confession and in prayer and in praise. We come together to be instructed by God's Word and comforted by the message of redemption. We come to eat and drink and remember and rejoice. We come in spirit. We come in truth. We come in love and communion. We come together to worship. And by God's grace, that's how he grows his people. Let's praise him for it, and let's come to his table together as one body. Gracious Lord, loving Father, thank you that you unite us together in one body under Christ, our head. Oh Lord, sometimes we come away seeing things that might be puzzling at first. I pray that the focus here would not be uh, even as we go through these things, that many would think, wow, that pastor really studied hard this week, but that we would see the clarity of your truth, that we would be drawn to see your glory and your goodness. Oh, Lord, you are a God who speaks to us, and we can hear you speak to us in your word. Help us to be mature in the way that we interact with that. Help us to be mature in the way that we encourage one another in worship and join together to proclaim your praises and rejoice in your name. Help us now, O Lord, to come together to this one table and rejoice in our one Savior. We pray these things in your name. Amen.